0: Do you know Turing? Of course you do. With Sauce and Jen, it's one of the blockbusters to do probabilistic programming in Julia. And in this episode, Cameron Pfeiffer will tell us about it how it came to life, how it fits into the probabilistic programming landscape, and what its main strengths and weaknesses are. Cameron did some Rust, some Python, but he especially loves coding in Julia. That's also why he's one of the core developers of Turing.jl. He's also a PhD student in finance at the University of Oregon and did his masters in finance at the University of Reading. His interests are pretty broad, from cryptocurrencies, algorithmic and high-frequency trading to AI in financial markets and anomaly detection. In a nutshell, he is a fan of topics where technology is involved. As he's the first economist to come on the show, I also asked him how Bayesian the field of economics is, why he thinks economics is quite unique among the social sciences and how economists think about causality and I later learned that this topic is pretty controversial. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 19, recorded April 23, 2020. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the project, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting stats.anvil.app. That's learnbayesstats.anvil. App. Do you want to support the podcast AND unlock exclusive patient swag at the same time? Then you can visit my Patreon page at patreon.com slash stats. Starting at $3, you can get various benefits like the private Learn Based Stats Slack channel, early access to special episodes, selecting questions for episodes, or even coming on the show. You'll get more details at patreon.com slash stats. Thanks a lot, guys! I'm very grateful for any support let me show you how to be a good Bayesian, change your predictions after taking information in and if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations what's a Bayesian? it's someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice, a Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability, cause every belief is provisional, and when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen, maybe cause my likeness lowers Expectations of tight rhyming How would I know unless I'm rhyming In front of a bunch of blind men Dropping placebo-controlled science Like I'm Richard Fyfe Hey guys! Before listening to my conversation with Cameron, I wanted to take a moment and thank my very first supporters on Patreon, especially those in the full posterior tier or higher. So a big thank you to Yusuke Saito, Avi Bryant, Aero Carrera, Brian Huey, Juliano Cruz, Tim Gasser, Ian Doss, James Wade, Trad Salvo, Adam Bartonicek, and William Benton. I'm really sorry if I mispronounced some names here, but it comes from the heart, guys! And I wanna say, this really makes a difference, it helps me pay for the show's general expenses, for the editing, and perhaps later for more shows. I'm really grateful, please keep your feedback coming in the Learn Stats Slack channel, and now, let's hear from Cameron. Cameron Pfeiffer, welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: I'm very happy to get you on the show, not only because the Julia probabilistic programming landscape is very dynamic, as Chat Chair told us in episode 13, but also because you're the first trained economist to be on the show. And I have to say, it's a bit hard to get econ people on a Bayesian show, and I have a feeling you'll tell us why, but I'm very happy to have you on.
1: Oh, well, thank you very much. I'm happy to be your first economist because there's not many econ people who are in the Bayesian cult. So happy to say whatever it is I can.
0: Yeah, we're going to dive a little deeper on that and econ and Bayesian methods, because I know you wrote a very interesting blog post about that in the middle of the quarantine. But let's start by your background, because in this blog post that I put in the show notes, you wrote that you are not an optimization person or a machine learning person or even really anyone with any measure of formal engineering training So who are you, Cameron? (laughs) Yeah,
1: just like the best way to make any kind of expository argument is to basically tell everyone how terrible you are (laughs) yeah, (laughs) and then say some things.
0: Set expectations, yeah.
1: I did my master's in corporate finance and I got into corporate finance and finance in general because I thought it was really cool. And then I went to this financial compliance company called ACA Compliance Group and we verified financial investment returns, which is actually kind of fun. And I got really tired of doing all this stuff manually in Excel spreadsheets. And so I was like writing all this vba code oh. to automate everything which was horrible and i kept complaining that i was like look i can do all this stuff really fast yeah. but you need to give me better tools so i got put onto this c-sharp platform the whole company had ran on this really awesome c-sharp there's like a million line code base or something and so i got hooked into it and started writing code and i was like this is awesome <laughs> i love this i'm having a good time and about the same time i got into that i applied for a phd because i thought it was super cool i got in surprisingly and now I'm in my second year of my PhD. My first year paper was on theoretical modeling, but I like econometrics and kind of big data and stuff like that. And I'm hoping to do interesting Bayesian research. I'm working on a project on that right now. And I don't know. I feel like I didn't answer your question very well. <laughs>
0: No, my question was very broad. It was, who are you, Cameron? So (laughs) I guess you did. (laughs) It explains a little where I come from. And actually, do you remember why you were interested in finance and corporate finance in the first place before even going into your master's?
1: My undergrad is actually in theater arts. So I was like a professional stagehand for a long time. I did lighting design and stuff. We had a club that would send the theater students to events. And I found out there was a way that you could get money from the school to do that if you go to this committee, you could request money. And so I went there, and there's like 110 club representatives, and they were like, who wants to be on the council that allocates funds? There's like $100,000 every year. And I was like, oh, great idea. I'll join the committee, and I can get money from my club to send my people. Mm. And then I got to the first council meeting, and they were like, who wants to chair the committee? Who wants to lead the committee? And I was like, oh, I'll do that, because that's an excellent way to get money for my club. <laughs> and I got into it, and I was like, this is awesome. I really like looking at money, sort of. That was like the very naive interest I had in the outset. And then I like accounting and finance classes and i loved it they were great and i got very into academic finance and how it is that people think about choices about money and how it constrains them and how uh, firms make choices with constraints on money and all these kinds of things and so i I kind of fell down the rabbit hole there it's
0: funny to see how you discovered this interest kind of by accident actually
1: yeah i get that a lot i have like kind of the stupidest background (laughs) of anyone in the rest of my field right they're all like math people or computer science people or whatever and i'm just like i did theater arts and i failed every math class i ever took in <laughs> high school like I'm good at
0: math now. I was going to say it's the most important thing is that you're good at math now. Yes, that's true. And actually, it's kind of inspiring, I think, to see stories like yours, I guess, for people who want to switch fields and so on. It's always very interesting to see people doing that and see that it's possible. It's often not easy. It asks for a lot of courage and perseverance and time, but you can do it. (laughs) That's
1: true. You can do it. Anyone can do it. You can learn calculus. It's super easy. (laughs) Just remember, calculus is cool.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Especially when it's done by computers.
1: (laughs) Oh, yes. I did analytical calculus. And then I was like, this is awesome. And then I was like, oh, man, I can just numerically integrate all this stuff. Who cares? I don't need to solve for integrals
0: anymore. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I had exactly the same revelation when I first entered some stats into uh, Stata because I come from a social science background and there they use Stata a lot. And uh, yeah, I was like, oh, man, that's awesome. I don't have to use pen and paper to compute probabilities. It's great. I can simulate probability distributions. I can graph them. It's awesome.
1: (laughs) You know, this is is something I was also thinking about recently, which is maybe it's just like younger people in general, but I've noticed that younger people tend to go to computational methods too quick. So I do this too, where like, I don't think very hard about what the analytic properties are of the model or whatever. And then I just like throw the biggest possible computer I can at it. And that's so much worse in a lot of ways than like somebody from like 1970 who derived explicit posteriors because they worked really hard, right? Young people don't do that as much anymore. And I think a lot of science is worse in some ways and better in some ways because we rely too heavily on computers. And I'm super guilty of this. Mm-hmm. Me too. But like, I've noticed this a lot. People just don't think as hard analytically.
0: Yeah, I don't know about age difference because I think I'm not that old, so I can't really still see. But I tend to agree with that statement. And it's actually one of the good perks of Bayesian methods, I think, because you have to think analytically or at least at the generative process of your data, you know, and think about what could have generated your data and think about the appropriate priors. Because if you don't do that, usually the model one sample so you have to do it and it's actually kind of good because you have to specify your priors your hypothesis you have to think about which geometric space your model lives in you know all that stuff that's kind of hard for beginners, I think. And it makes Asian statistics harder to learn at the beginning, but it's an investment work in finance. though, so I guess it's a good metaphor. It's really an investment and you get the returns in the medium or long-term.
1: Yeah, it's true. One thing that strikes me is reparameterization tricks. Like Gibbs conditionals, you know, you work really hard to get your Gibbs conditionals. I currently would just like sample from the latent space. I would construct explicit posteriors for some latent process. I was reading this old finance paper. They basically eliminated two variables by doing this tricky little reparameterization thing that I would never have thought of. And it was like this super simple analytical trick that basically made their model mix really, really quick. Mm. But if I were to do it, I would need a huge computer and it would take me forever. And even now, with how fast all these sampling methods are, it would still take me a very long time. We can just like come with these nice little tricks if you spend maybe a couple hours.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's the kind of things that make me a little anxious because I'm like, well, if I had to do that, I would never have thought of doing that. How did they come up with that idea? That's awesome to see these tricks. But how do you come up with the trick in the first place? That's the hard part. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I'm with you. I would have no way of coming up with that either. Actually,
0: Before we talk about Asian stuff more, I think it would be useful for you to define financial economics for us because that's your field. And as I said, you're the first economist to come on the show. So I think it will be useful to listeners.
1: Okay, sure. So economics, broadly, is just like the study of scarcity. What do people do? How do things change their behavior when there's not an infinite amount of stuff? There's not infinite money, so you have to make choices about what you can buy, what you can do, where you spend your time. And financial economics is a subfield of that which basically says, well, money is scarce, so how does the scarcity of money change the economy? So how do firms choose to invest? How do people choose to save for retirement? How do all of these things interact? And it's mostly a function of how money is scarce. It's a lot broader than that, obviously, but I think that's kind of a sufficient definition.
0: Yeah, that's a good definition, I think. At least I understood it. And actually, I'm curious about one sentence that you had in your blog post. You say in that blog post that economics is the unique field that tends to stand out in the sciences. So I'm really curious about what you meant about that.
1: So this is not necessarily just my opinion. If you ever talk to any economist, they're very quick to basically hold up the field of economics as extremely special. And they are, they're right in some ways. They're kind of wrong sometimes because they bash sociology. Like one thing you'll hear is like, well, sociologists, this is what a sociologist would run. And of course, the regression is wrong. They'll say stuff like that. But there's something true to it, which is that in all social sciences, there's not truth. There's not, like, ground truth in the same way as there is in, like, physics, right? If somebody writes a theory, you can go check. It's true. Like, if you expect to see this particle conditional on these assumptions, you can build a gigantic machine and shoot particles at things until the thing you're looking for shows up. It might cost $100 million or $2 billion or whatever, but you'll get it. In economics, I can't go outside, capture people. I can't sit them in front of a chair and say, I want you to tell me what brand of cereal you like and then rank all of their choices and use it to like approximate their utility function. Like I can't ask you what your utility function is because it's a concept, it's a tool we use. So you can't test things. And this is common in all social sciences, not just econ. But in economics, we use all these mathematical models to describe behavior that we should see. And then we take those models and we look very hard with those models at things we see in the world. I'm not saying that other fields don't do this, but economics models are super complicated because the economy is very complicated. And so I think just the degree to which modeling is used. We have descriptions of how the world should work. And we look and see whether or not the data says that that model is true. And I think that's a very good model. It works quite well for economics. And it doesn't have nearly as much uptake as economists would argue that it should in other fields. Whether that's true, I don't know. But you want to make sure that the thing that you are looking at is causal, right? You care a lot about whether or not something's causal. Mm -hmm. So does X cause Y? You better make sure that it does, because if you're going to say something, you kind of want to be certain. Because there's no ground truth, you want to have a good model that supports some kind of causal relationship, and you want good data that supports the thing that your analytic model predicted. So economics is very sophisticated in a lot of ways, mathematically, certainly empirically, and they focus very heavily on causal inference. I think those are the kind of the three things, but economists think too hard.
0: I agree with that part. Maybe I would refer find your sentence in saying that economics is a unique field that tends to stand out in the social sciences because of the characteristics you just mentioned. I would say that the hard sciences are also characterized by what you just said, with, of course, the limitation that you laid out, that there is no really ground truth in social science. And also, it's less deterministic because you're studying people, people react to models, to decisions of other people, and so on. But I do agree, at least from my point of view, I come from the political sciences. And I do agree that I think in the social sciences realm, economics is by far the most careful about these kind of methods and causality. It's just a prior on my part. And it's not a very strong prior because I don't have a lot of data to back my theory, you know, so if any political scientist or sociologist want to disprove me, that's completely fine. But it's just how I would represent the world before saying you need data. Something I was curious to ask you was, I recently read uh, Judea Pearl's Book of Why, and all what he did with the directed acyclic graphs and thinking about causal inference. And I don't recall seeing this kind of thinking a lot in economics, in the sense that, at least from an outsider point of view, it kind of seems to still rely a lot on randomized control trial as the holy grail. More generally, I don't really see all this being careful about the graphs, and you are careful about confounders and so on, but it doesn't seem like the field at the whole really applies the framework that pearls develop to take care of these confounding issues. What's your take about that? I'm very curious.
1: This is something I'm actually very curious about because we learn about causal inference in a totally different way than most of like the Judea pearls stuff. Yeah. And so my understanding of this, and as far as the literature is concerned is like, There's a very famous statistician named Rubin way back in the day, and my understanding is that a lot of the Rubin ideas about causality was based on something we use called the conditional independence assumption, Mm. which is basically that conditional on all of your observed data, your error that you make in predicting some data is independent. It's mean zero, it's not correlated with any of your x variables or anything, or your y variables. With your y variables, it's okay if they're correlated with your x, but it's problematic in some way. And so we didn't really latch on to the graph calculus way Mm. of thinking about causal inference. A lot of the methods that we use, you can define them implicitly with directed acyclic graph, but nobody ever thinks about it in that way. They think, well you have a variable that you're not controlling for. Or your x and your y variables are correlated. They're simultaneously determined in equilibrium, so you cannot make inferences about coefficients. Like, that's how people think. And so there is a very implicit sense in which they're using this kind of like Judea-Pearl framework, but it, it is so different in a very interesting way. And it is very insular from the computer science stats people who kind of are more focused on the graph method. And I find it really, really fascinating, because, like, do-calculus is super cool, yeah. but economics has this identification cult. Like, we think really hard about whether or not, it, when we have our kind of shared language with, like, all the Rubin descendant fields, yeah. we have this very specific language about whether or not something is identified and whether or not it's causal and all these things. So I don't know why it didn't get picked up. Maybe just because the Judeo-Pearl stuff was newer, like, and economics is a kind of a slow-moving field. Mm. It's very slow at incorporating, like, computer science and kind of modern statistics, like, computational statistics anyway. Mm. And it's very sophisticated in other realms. We've taken like the Rubin idea of causal inference to its farthest extremes. It's very sophisticated in economics, yeah. but it's a different kind of sophisticated. Yeah, it's
0: fascinating to me too, because in economics, I often hear and see people talking about causality and endogenous variable and so on. And if I understood correctly, endogenous variable, I like confounded variable or something like that. Yeah, more right. or less.
1: Basically, the classic example of this is price and quantity. Mm. So if you regress the price of a good on how many units it was sold. You can't really make any useful inference because the number of units that were sold was a unit of how high or low the price Mm. was. If the price was low, you sell a lot of units. But you also can't tell if price changed because quantity didn't move. So like, let's say quantity didn't move and price moved in response. Mm. Because those two variables are endogenous to one another, they're simultaneously determined, you can't make inferences unless you have some kind of strong identifying assumptions or some kind of, like we would typically use like an instrumental variable Mm. approach. You can read about that. I don't want to talk about those variables. They're very boring. But they are very important in identifying causal links. And that's how, one of the big tools that we use to
0: think yeah, about it. Yeah, but it's also <laughs> puzzling to me. Actually, I wonder how does the field right now determine which variable you should control for or not? And how does the field, I think about that, because in the calculus framework, I think the two main advantages are, one, the calculus can tell you, well, you should control for this variable because it's a mediator. But you shouldn't control for this variable because it's a collider. So if you want the direct causal. You absolutely shouldn't control for it. And also, the interesting thing is to say after the two calculus analysis: well, actually, if you think this is the right DAG, the DAG that describes the reality given the data that you have you can't estimate the direct causal link between X and Y. Then when you know that, I think it's huge information, valuable information, because then either you can go collect the data you're missing or you can go on to another project. And I'm wondering if economics doesn't use this framework, how do you guys do to do that right now? How do you decide about controlling for some variables and so on?
1: Typically, it's like you make an economic argument. This actually speaks to kind of the mathematical analytic nature of economics is you say, okay, well, you know, we have all these models that say price and quantity are determined jointly. Mm. So we know that you can't just like look at price and quantity on a normal day and say, what's the relationship between these two? Mm. And so you basically have to make this argument where you say, why is it that this variable that I'm including is a reasonable control? Is it correlated with other variables Is it correlated with my why in a way such that it is undesirable to have in a regression? So you think really hard about those kinds of things. Actually, there's a good book called Mostly Harmless Econometrics, which is like very much about how economists think about causal inference. Mm. It's an excellent book. The gist of it is you rely on some kind of economic intuition. Somebody would say, you're not controlling for this. I believe it causes why. And you see this in seminars, like whenever you give a presentation Mm -hmm. about an empirical economics paper, somebody will show up, they'll stand at the front of the room and they'll say, I regressed Y on X. And then somebody in the room will say, well, did you include Z? Because Z causes Y. -hmm. We happen to know from these two models that Z causes Mm -hmm. Y. And if you're not including that, your estimates on X are incorrect. Mm -hmm. They're just biased. They're wrong. So a lot of it more determined by this implicit model we all have in the sky of how the economy should work rather than very formalized graphs that you would make in kind of a Judea pearl sense.
0: But in that case, to take your example again, how do you convince this person that you shouldn't actually control Z because Z is a collider on that and that. And if you control Z, then you're gonna confound the analysis even more. How do you do that in economics then if you don't use the UDR polls framework?
1: It's kind of the exact same thing, right? The classic one I would think is, let's say you wanted to regress the amount of money that a mutual fund receives mm. in one month. You wanna know how much money they receive as a function of their size. Mm. So those are kind of jointly determined, right? If you include fund size on the right-hand side, you have a problem because fund flows and size are the same. Because if you have money come in, your fund just mechanically goes up. And so there's all these things where if somebody will put something on there, they'll list out their regression specification and they'll say, I included this control. And somebody will say, no, you cannot do that. It's endogenous. There's this strictly mechanical relationship between those two. So you fall really hard on this kind of economic intuition. You have to understand all the variables, how they work, and all the connections between all the variables. It's hard. It's a nightmare.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's also why I ask this question, because I'm fascinated. It feels to me it's even harder to think about these things without having, you know, a framework like the PEARLS framework we talked about. Because in that case, it's a lot easier both to convince people that they are wrong or convince people that you are right. You know, it's easier. You can show them the Ducal so on When it's only based on what looks like priors, it's hard. in my opinion.
1: Well, I think there's an advantage because everyone speaks this language. There is no sense in, like, we're picking between, like, do calculus and we're picking between this kind of classical frequentist causal inference style method. It is unambiguously, we all know the relationships between all these variables, because when we do our doctorates, we all just solve first order conditions. We all solve models that dictate that variable X and variable Y are directly correlated. So everyone knows this very common language. So it's very actually kind of advantageous because everyone speaks exactly the same language. Mm. It's kind of nice and they'll get the argument. If you say, I believe that Z causes Y or Z causes X or something directly, you make some claim about someone's model. You can say, well, Here's the first order condition, Mm. right? I'm writing out the model Mm. and then I'll just take a derivative of some objective function. And there's the result. They're directly correlated and your model is kind of suspect. So you should adjust that or you need better identification or something like that. Yeah. Okay.
0: But you have to invest a lot of time in the first place to get familiar with all this. Yeah.
1: There's a big fixed cost.
0: Yeah, okay. That's fascinating. I could talk about that a long time as you understood about this causal inference digression, but that's always a question I want to ask cannabis when I see them.
1: It's a good question because I'm always very curious. I love the Judea Pearl stuff. Mm. I think it's super Mm. cool. And we just don't have that framework. Mm. I'd be interested in learning more about it, but we all just speak the same language and there's so much inertia that I doubt we'll ever go to something like that.
0: Speaking about inertia and being reticent to change, I want to talk to you about Bayesian methods and economics. Uh, (laughs) Oh, there you go. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That is
1: the best segue (laughs)
0: Yeah, thanks. I, I didn't do it on purpose. But actually, how Bayesian are the fields of financial economics and more generally economics?
1: Financial economics, almost not at all. I would say it's like 98% frequentist, 2% Bayesian. Oh, okay. And economics, it's a little more complicated. So it varies between subfields of economics. Some fields in broader economics are more complex than others. So macroeconomics typically actually has a very strong Bayesian component to it because typically they have very small data sets and really strong priors. Mm. They say, I believe that money should work this way or something. It actually lends itself very well to a Bayesian workflow. But a big problem with why Bayesian methods are not applied much in financial economics, we always had way more data than everyone else. And so Bayesian methods don't scale well, at least like if you're doing a formal true posterior analysis, they really don't scale that Mm. well. And if you have 5000 different time series going back 60 years at a monthly level, you're not going to run like some full hierarchical model Mm. on all of that. It's just really not going to happen. And I think actually that's kind of a shame. There's a field in finance called corporate finance which is about how firms make decisions, basically. And in corporate finance, we have a lot of very interesting theory, like analytic theory that says when managers have these priors or they have this very Bayesian analytical framework. And then the empirical side is almost never Bayesian, even though they could use this very analytic Bayesian framework to basically just take the model from the paper and just directly apply it on the data. And I don't see that. You know, I went through all the papers in like the top three journals in the past couple of years, and I saw maybe two corporate finance papers that use some kind of formal Bayesian method. And it's kind of a shame. We have all these really cool analytic models that are Bayesian and they're never used even though they could just be directly transplanted.
0: Yeah. Then I want to ask you, what are you doing there? How can you find a supervisor to do your PhD? How can you find co-authors and so on? Because if you just have 2% of your field that do Bayesian inference, well, either you always write and talk with the same people or people are more often to Bayesian methods than it seems. So which is it?
1: True. People kind of make fun of me because I have like weird interests. I like Bayesian methods. And then I like the subfield of finance called market microstructure, which is all about how information and stuff is revealed in transactions in financial markets. That's a huge data field. We're talking millisecond or nanosecond level data for all these securities. You know, it regularly runs into the terabytes of data. And that's a very small field too. The Bayesian cult is small. The microstructure cult is small. So it is actually pretty hard to find people to like collaborate with. I can kind of like trick people. I can say like, well, what if you put this model onto it and let's see what the model says and like, let's check our priors and stuff. And there are some faculty I have who are kind of into Bayesian methods, or at least they work on theoretical models that have Bayesian methods applied, but not so much on the empirical side. So I'm hoping I can kind of trick them into doing more empirical Bayesian stuff. But you're right, it is tricky to find people who are as interested in it as I am and who learned it kind of the same way that I did, which is kind of more of an intuitive way than a mathematical way. But there's always costs to learning things intuitively. So yeah, it is tricky.
0: Yeah. And actually, from what you said and the limitations also, which are true limitation of the technology yet to be able to scale to huge data sets and so on. And at the same time, it seems that you think it would be useful to have more Bayesian methods in economics and financial economics. I'm wondering how confident you are that these methods are going to gain traction, I don't know, in the coming five years, for instance. And if you could answer on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the highest.
1: I would say a three. Oh, yeah. I think probably the thing I would more expect to see is approximations to posteriors, There's a lot of really cool stuff in variational inference. There's a lot of really cool stuff in Bayesian core sets and things like that, that you can apply to really big data sets and you can get all these interesting things out. But it's just not as valuable in financial economics because Bayesian methods are particularly valuable when you have very strong priors, which we do in economics. We have very strong priors about what we should expect to see. Yeah, as you said, yeah. And then we also have this huge data problem. Mm. Like we have too much data. And if you have some model that takes n to n observations, as n goes to infinity, you basically collapse on sort of a frequentist estimate, right? Your prior stop mattering after a long yeah. time. So, you know, I'm just not that confident, which sucks, but it's cool. It's a really cool field, and it's, all the tools are really interesting, and I like the way of thinking, but it's, I don't know that it's going to get applied.
0: Okay. It makes me also wonder, because you've always been in the financial economics studies, or before you were in the theater arts, I guess it's not there that you learned about Bayesian methods, but do you remember how you first got introduced to Bayesian methods?
1: I have a very, very brief introduction with, I think it was PymC3, when I was doing my master's. And I got very scared. It was hard. Like, I didn't understand what was happening. I didn't know what the tutorial was telling me to do, so I kind of gave up. And I didn't look at it again for, like, another year or two. And then when I started my PhD, I'd been writing a lot in Julia. And I was contacted by Hong Ge, who runs Turing. He was like, hey, do you know anything about Markov Chain Monte Carlo? And I was like, yeah, uh, sort of. Then I just started learning about it, like basically from there, because I started developing on Turing and I was like, I had to learn really quickly what was going on, (laughs) even though I had by far the least amount of training Mm. of anyone else on the team. I'd be like, why can't I just take the mean of this posterior? That's what I've always done. And then somebody would be like, the whole point is that you get like a full density. <laughs> and I'd be like, right, of course I do that.
0: <laughs> How do you compute the air squared of this regression? You know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well I would ask like really kind of dumb stuff like that because my brain is still kind of hardwired in a frequentist yeah, way. And so when I start get all these Bayesian methods I'm like, come on man, <laughs> where are my standard errors? I basically just kind of picked it up on the fly mostly which has been tremendously helpful because it's a very quick way to learn something Mm. is by being the worst person in the room at something Mm. yeah, and having really smart people around you, which I'm very fortunate to have at to Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, that's true. I figured that out too. Being surrounded by more brilliant people than you makes you work a lot better, a lot faster. So that's great. (laughs) Yeah,
1: the best goal I have in life is to be the dumbest person in the room at all times. That's like the best possible outcome for my life.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Actually, I'm curious about why did he contact you? in the first place.
1: He contacted me because basically he was looking for people to work on Turing. And the number of Julia developers at that time was quite small. Mm. Julia is a fantastic language, mm. but there are just not as many developers mm. as there is in like Python, yeah. or it's pretty easy to find like Python people. Yeah. Very hard to find Julia mm. people. And uh, on paper, I look really good, right? I'm a PhD student, so I can kind of figure stuff out as I go. Most people can't, you don't have to be a PhD student. But yeah, that was why. I'm one of very few people who knows Julia. So it was very fortunate.
0: It's ah, funny, it's actually because you knew a lot about Julia, that he asked you if you wanted to work on Turing, and then because of that you had to go into Bayesian methods. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's completely the other way around. That's really funny.
1: And it's super weird, like I don't think it would work anywhere else if this happened yeah. in Python. Yeah, Stan, yeah. Stan. Because I know C++, they're not like gonna ask me to write Stan, because Stan is a monster.
0: Yeah, you have to be there at the very beginning of a language or something like that, because, as you said, it's about scarcity again.
1: Yes, everything's about scarcity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. (laughs) Welcome to economics, buddy. Yeah,
0: (laughs) that's fascinating. Then, because it was kind of risky for you, too, to take on that work on Turing, because uh, if you hadn't liked Bayesian methods, what would you have done? And actually, my question would be, why do you like Bayesian methods still and why do you still use them?
1: Because they're cool. (laughs) The whole reason I like finance is because it's cool. Mm. And Bayesian methods are super cool, too. It gives you a really interesting way to think about things. Mm. When you think in a frequentist perspective, like if you run a regression, you will have a coefficient estimate and you will have a standard error. The coefficient estimate is your point estimate and your standard error is basically how confident you are about that particular point estimate. And that is a nice way of characterizing uncertainty, but it also doesn't give you a nice structure that you get from Bayesian methods, right? If you have like a unimodal or a bimodal or multimodal posterior, your standard error is really bad way of characterizing your uncertainty about your point estimates Mm. because you have two modes now, Mm. maybe and you have like maybe a highest posterior density in two different regions and so if you have like multiple modes you're like oh that's interesting there's some reason why there's maybe two modes here it could just kind of be a numerical thing like label switching but maybe it's like something that's actually useful and interesting to think Mm. about and i like that because the ols estimator is only ever going to give you one of those Mm. modes because ols is a maximum likelihood estimator. Mm -hmm. but yeah they're just cool
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I agree, you're preaching to the choir. It's funny to hear that as a justification. I did not have that on the podcast. I had to tape 19 episodes to get this answer. Why are you using Bayesian methods? Because they're cool.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I honestly think that's a really good justification. Like people who do things because they're cool or people who do things for like very high-minded reasons, I admire them tremendously. If you're using Bayesian methods because they're strictly the best tool for the job, you're a hero if you're like me you really like computers and just letting them go and do stuff you're not so much a hero but you know i think it's fine to say that you like something because it's cool
0: i don't know if you heard the theme music of this podcast but it's a hip-hop song about patient methods how cool is that
1: Oh yeah, I've been singing that around the house the whole <laughs> past couple of weeks. My wife is tired
0: of it. That's great. The author is Baba Brinkman. He's a very good artist. I love him. If you're uh, hearing us, thanks for this amazing <laughs> song. You touched a little about that already, but I'm wondering, because you said that you did some Python, I know you also did some Rust. Now you're very much into the Julia ecosystem. And I'm just wondering if you can quickly walk us through your programming journey and why did you find Julia attractive in the end?
1: So my dad and my brother are both very good engineers. They're both very highly skilled programmers. And so I was like, nah, I don't want to program because they're good at it, I'll do my own thing. And then when I started getting back into like finance and kind of empirical methods, I was like, what's the thing that my brother and my dad will never use? And I'll use R, because R is not anything resembling. It is a programming language, but it's not C. But then I was like, okay, well, I'm all right with R. I might as well do Python. Didn't like Python so much and then i started learning like haskell cuz my brother was into haskell and i was like all right it's time to do some weird cool language haskell made me tired and angry cuz nothing i wanted to do would work and then i picked up julia because it was pretty i just saw like syntax and i thought it was just like really nice looking and that was like the first thing that drew me in and then when i started writing it i was like this is super easy like everything i want to do is just like done it's like as easy as python but it's more fun to write and it's way faster. I love it. It's like such a good language. It's fun to look at. The type system is amazing. Like it's just fun. It's just like a good language. I wish more people knew it because it's just good. Like.
0: (laughs) You're doing a good advertisement for this language.
1: (laughs) Good. It should be better. I wish there was a way better Julia salesman than I am. (laughs) But as it is in my office, back when I used to go to an office, I would give out Julia stickers to all PhD (laughs) students in the hope they they would be like, what is this lovely language you've told me about? Would you like to teach me how to use it? So far, no one's taken me up on that because they're riding the Python struggle bus and they don't want another language. Uh, yeah, but you gotta try it. If you haven't tried Julia, you should definitely try Julia, cause it's just fun.
0: Yeah, I wanna try too, but uh, it's true that one language at a time, first master one language and then go struggle with another when you're missing these times where you're banging your head against the wall because you don't understand why what you're yes. doing is not the same as the tutorial and so on, so.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's true. And we have a super helpful community, which is very mm, nice. Yeah. Everyone is very, very helpful. They're super nice. They'll give you like nice tips on like just speed in general. Everyone's very nice in Julia because a lot of people know each other. But we're starting to get to the size now. I'm seeing a great deal of names I did not know. We have like a Slack chat, and I look at the Slack chat and I'm like, who are these people? What are they talking about? Like, I have no idea. And that's kind of weird. It used to be maybe 40 people. That's an understatement, but there's a lot of people, and I just knew all their names, and now I just have no idea. Which is really yeah. good. Like, it's a very good thing for the language.
0: That's nice. Actually, I was really impressed by the fact that probabilistic programming stuff in Julia is very dynamic, as Chad Chair told us in episode 13. So that's a nice segue to talk about Turing now, because we have been talking a long time now, but uh, we still haven't talked about Turing. So this is the package you contribute to that allows people to do probabilistic programming in Julia. So. Maybe Maybe just tell listeners what it is, maybe how it came into life. I don't know at what time you joined the team, how mature the project was when you joined. Maybe if you can give us this background.
1: Sure. So kind of at the top level, Turing is a probabilistic programming language written in Julia. It's a dynamic probabilistic programming language in the sense that your models are dynamic. You can change dimensionality as you go along. It is nice and fast. In some cases we're beating Stan in performance, in some cases we're quite close to Stan, and in some cases Stan still outperforms because Stan is pretty amazing. I'm not gonna beat around the bush there, but we're actually comparable to Stan in terms of speed. And it's super easy to write models. This is one of my favorite things about Turing. You write models the same way that you would write them in a paper where you say, X is distributed normally with this prior. And you even use the tilde notation, which I love because if you're a little slow like me, I don't want to think about distributions. I don't want to think about like a function. I just want to use the little tilde. The other thing that we have that is really nice is that we have this huge sampling library. So one of the big selling points initially of Turing was that you had composable inference. Basically, you could do a particle filter on an integer-based variable, and you could do a Hamiltonian Monte Carlo sampler on a continuous Mm. variable and you could combine them. One of the issues with Stan is like, you can't do really do integer variables because you have no U-turn sampling or Hamiltonian methods, basically. But you can choose, I want variable one to be particle sampler and I want everything else to be sampled according to nuts, mm. which is really cool. And I think it would be remiss to not mention that particular strength in Turing.
0: Actually, how it came into life? Were the goals and the objectives at the time?
1: This was kind of a University of Cambridge project from a guy named Hong Ge, who runs the project still. I came on a little while after this was founded, but I asked him, and so I guess what happened was he was working on this random fragmentation process problem, and he couldn't use like probabilistic C or STAN or anything because it's kind of this dynamic supermodel, I guess. And so he said he had a, quote, miserable time and eventually came up with Turing, and I guess at that point Turing was mostly just particle samplers, so it's mostly just particle methods. There was a master's student at Cambridge named Kai Shu, who's still on the team also, who basically wanted to do Hamiltonian methods. So they included Hamiltonian Monte Carlo methods pretty early on in Turing, and it kind of evolved from there. And then about the time that I joined, Hong Ge had basically started like finding people to bring them in. And so now we have a whole bunch of team members. It's on the website. But there's a lot of people who work on Turing now, and they're all very highly skilled. It basically took off in terms of development speed. I think sometime around when I joined, maybe a little after. It's not my fault. I didn't contribute most of the development. There was a lot of people who joined in about the same time. And yeah, we've basically been continuously developing now for at least as long as I've been around in a big way.
0: Yeah, and congrats on this project. It's really awesome. And it's great to see these kinds of projects coming around and gaining traction, as you said. Actually, I'm wondering, because now there are several options to do probabilistic programming in Julia. We talked about Sauce with uh, Chad. In episode 13, we also talked about Gen. So I'm wondering how Turing fits into this ecosystem. What's its characteristics maybe compared to Gen, sauce and other packages?
1: Yeah, those are kind of the top three, counting Turing and Sauce. There's a couple of other projects, but they're kind of small. Most of them are kind of like pet projects. They're still cool, but they're mostly like pet projects. So Gen and Turing are very similar. And actually they're all three of them are similar in that they're all kind of universal probabilistic programming languages. Turing is intended to be very composable. So it's composable on the inference side. You can kind of hot swap whatever sampler you want to use on the variable side. We're working still on like trying to pry the modeling component out. So there's kind of this idea that we would like to have like statically compiled graphs. And you just hand it a statically compiled graph and it runs through the samplers. And you kind of get speed boosts, but you lose the dynamic component. And my understanding of Gen so far is like they're mostly static. And as a result of that, they get this kind of significant speed boost. They're also targeted a little differently. It's more of kind of like a machine learning or kind of like online inference style thing. Whereas Turing is more focused on formal kind of Bayesian estimation. It has like the same workflow as Stan more or less. And Sauce is actually pretty interesting because like Chad's got this really, really interesting approach to like how he formalizes models in his system. The syntax is very similar to Turing and he can do all these tricks with likelihoods and things like that to basically treat a model as if it were a distribution. So we're still kind of working on actually allowing Turing and Sauce to kind of talk to each Mm. other. So you could in theory define a Sauce model and stick it in a Turing model, or define a Turing model and stick it inside a Mm. Sauce and just kind of perform inference on like different kinds of hierarchical models like that. So yeah, by far I think Turing is like the most actively developed. But Gen and Sauce are both super interesting projects, their Mm. accomplishments. They're quite remarkable. Mm. And I have like a lot of solidarity that like Julia is like doing super great at probabilistic programming. We have like three really awesome projects, which is kind of outsized impact for kind of the size of the Julia community. Mm. And it speaks to how easy it is to develop some of these in Julia.
0: Yeah, that was basically the sense of my question. Not to formalize a hierarchy between the packages, but more to have a sense of how different they are. But Because you insisted on the fact that one of the strengths of Turing was the fact that it was dynamic and you could change the shape of a model dynamically. And I was wondering when you would need to do that. Would it be when you do, for instance, sampling and then posterior predictive sampling that you need to change the shape of a model or other use cases?
1: I'm thinking more in terms of Bayesian non-parametric models. The whole reason Turing was started was because it's kind of a non-parametric model. Like a lot of other tools are pretty bad at handling that.
0: So maybe for listeners, can you give some examples of non-parametric models?
1: One example is like Gaussian processes. You have k parameters, and then you look at the function of that model as k goes to infinity. And so in the case of a Gaussian process, this is like the sampling points how the multivariate normal is characterized. But the most salient example I have in my head, because we have a tutorial for it, is like infinite hidden Markov models. Mm-hmm. You can basically have means basically as you go along. And it's pretty hard to do that in a dynamic way where you add and subtract means as you go along.
0: It would be like a hidden Markov model with an infinite number of states. Yeah. Oh, OK. That's great.
1: You know, I'm not actually like a Bayesian non guy, but there's like a whole bunch of non people on mm-hmm. the team. So Martin Trapp and, and Honga and some other people, I'm sure I'm forgetting something, mm. but they work on very interesting dynamic dimensionality problems, yeah. which is, I guess, pretty tricky. And we handle it basically flawlessly, which is nice. Well, not flawlessly. I don't want to like get an issue where somebody's like, this doesn't work. You said it worked flawlessly. And I'll be like, sorry, I'll fix it.
0: You said on this podcast that it was flawless. Yes. Yeah. I'll see you in court, Cameron.
1: Yes. I don't want
0: that. <laughs> I didn't know that the focus was at least at the beginning on non-parametric methods. That's great. But more generally, what would you say are Turing's main advantages? And what are its main weaknesses? I love talking about weaknesses and mistakes on this podcast. Sorry, it's not to pick on you because you learn more about failures and weaknesses than about what you did, right? Usually.
1: True, it is. I think I mentioned some of the advantages, right? It's universal. It's super easy to write models. It's quick. You can compose samplers, you can do kind of different tricks and change your dimensionality and whatever. Those are all really great things. But onto failures, I agree with you, are very interesting. One of the problems I have that we're working on currently is how composable things are and interfaces between the different components of the language. So Turing at this point is actually start resembling less and less of like this monolith package. And it's starting to resemble more of a thing that glues many packages together, which I think is actually like a good way to go about things. So for example, it used to be that all of the Hamiltonian methods were just built into Turing. They only worked on Turing models. If you wanted to like copy the code for our Hamiltonian implementation and use it somewhere else, it was super hard. Like if you just had a likelihood and you just had a gradient, it's really hard to work with. But so what we started doing is we basically built all these little tiny packages. One is called advanced HMC. I maintain one called Advanced MH for Metropolis Hastings methods, and they're meant to work independently. So they're meant to work free of Turing if you just have a likelihood function or and you just have a gradient, maybe in the case of Hamiltonian methods, then it's super easy for you to just run it through there. You don't need Turing. But Turing basically plugs into all of these little packages. and. And that was kind of a problem at first because it was a problem to not have this composability initially because we had performance problems. We weren't sure which thing was going where. Some of these methods were old. A lot of these inference methods were built a long time ago. The particle sampler stuff today, because it was one of the original code bases, one of the original inference methods, is still kind of showing its age. So we're kind of targeting a refactor of the particle samplers, which I think is super important because particle sampling is super cool and it's very valuable. I'm not saying it's not great because we have great particle samplers but it also could be a lot better. It could be way more performant. It could be a lot quicker. There's still low hanging fruit in how it's implemented. And then another weakness, this is something that I work on specifically is one of the packages we have called MCMC Chains, which is how you basically describe a chain of parameters, all of your sample draws. It's gotten kind of bloated. You know, when I started working on MCMC Chains, I was still kind of bad at writing big performant code bases. And so it's starting to show its age a little bit. Like It doesn't have model comparison tools, which is something I desperately want. I want to be able to compare model A to model B. I want to look at likelihood criteria, or I want to look at all these last one out, or that WAIC, which I can't remember what that stands for. (laughs) But it's important for model comparison, I know that. But I just wish we had better tools for statisticians Mm. like Mm. me. I want something where I can just run this model super easy, and we can kind of do this already, but I want to have plots that are really performant, really quick, and they look really Mm. good. And we have a connection to arviz, yeah. the Python package yeah. somebody wrote that works really yeah. well. But honestly, a lot of that functionality should probably be native because mm. like arviz is spectacular and we should talk to it a little more and like it could be faster.
0: Yeah. And that's funny that you're talking about RVs. I'm actually on the team of RVs. So if you guys want to talk to us, you're welcome. We actually have a port indeed of rvs.jl That's handled by Seth Axon, who does indeed a great job with that. And indeed, the idea of RVs is exactly what you laid out, which is uh, no matter where you sampled your model on Stan, on PyMC, on Turing... On Sauce, etc., then you can plug your MCMC samples into RVs and get the same plots, the same statistical diagnostics, and so on. That's the idea, and he did. Thanks for him. I'm sure Seth will appreciate that you shout out about his good work. Oh,
1: yeah, everybody should get pats on the back for doing really cool work. And that is a really cool thing he assembled.
0: Indeed, indeed. Okay, that's interesting what you mentioned. I'm wondering about these weaknesses. Is there something in particular that if you guys were to do all over again, to create touring all over again, is it just one thing, one part of the library that you would do differently? I'm asking that, for instance, I had Junpeng Lao on episode 7, <laughs> who is a PyMC core contributor. And also he contributes regularly to TensorFlow probability. And he told me that, for instance, on PyMC3, one of the recurring problem is shape handling. And that uh, if he had to do it all over again, he would do that better. And that's actually what they are doing with the PyMC4. So I'm wondering, this thing that when you see an issue on GitHub or else, you're like, ah, man, ah, this stuff, I know how I would do it differently, but I can't do it right now.
1: That's a good question. If I were to rewrite it, I would start with interface methods first. A couple of months ago, me and David Widman, who was also on the team, have been working on creating this interface around sampling. So you do a step and thinking about like really abstract ways of doing this. And so on the sampling side is really nice, right? You generate a draw, you store it in a thing, and at the end you stick it in some kind of chain storage object. The problem is that so far on the modeling side, there isn't necessarily that strict disconnect. Mm. The nice thing about interface methods is you define this very general interface method, and then you hook some kind of modeling thing, whatever you're modeling technology is onto the interface. And I would love to see something like that. Not to say that it's our biggest weakness. The interconnect between the two is really nice. But the fact that we don't have interface methods from the outset means that it's a lot more difficult for people to like plug in their own modeling languages. And I would love to see more of that. I love interfaces. I think they're awesome. And I would love to see more of it. But there's so much legacy code in there that it's pretty hard to make a cohesive, well thought out interface that works everywhere. That's just a hard task. And I would have loved to see that from the beginning.
0: Mm. It's very interesting to hear. Actually, does it work in Julia as it does in Python, for instance? Did you already have Turing uh, 1.0, then Turing 1.1, or or else? Do you have uh, several versions? Or is it more like a continuum and you release new features, kind of very regular basis, continuous basis? So far,
1: you get features kind of continuously, which is nice. You know, we added like elliptical slice sampling two or three versions ago. And I'm going to add maximum likelihood and maximum a posteriori estimation methods, probably in one of the next major feature releases. So we're still not on 1.0, although I'm trying to start convincing people to think about going to 1.0 because we're approaching something that's resembling a very stable tool. I mean, it's quite stable now, but there's a psychological hurdle to going to 1.0 that some people don't like. But yeah, we do a lot of feature releases.
0: Okay. Yeah. And is it based actually on a special version of Julia or can you run Turing with any version of Julia?
1: So Julia had its 1.0 release a while ago, I think 2018. And so from that point, we basically support all versions of Julia 1.0. So you can still actually get versions of Turing that will work on like older versions of Julia. Mm but they're nowhere near as feature-rich. So you can kind of pick where you want to go. That's always we recommend running like kind of a better version. Like if you run Julia 1.3 or 1.4, you get really cool parallel sampling techniques that you can just use kind of automatically because there's much better threading support in Julia 1.3. Yeah. But other than that, it just works for all of Julia versions.
0: Yeah, that's very clear. We're getting short on time here, but I want to ask you two more questions before the last two questions, so four questions. I ask these questions to almost all my guests. I think it's interesting to hear your side of it. And I'm wondering what are the common difficulties you encounter with your models and with your data and how do you usually solve them?
1: So common problems with my models are typically that I can't find a gradient or like I get some kind of like null gradient of some kind because I typically have a lot of data and then I don't think about how it's scaled. Mm. And so typically it's really hard. This has gotten better over time. Like Julia's automatic differentiation toolkit is actually really good now. It was good before, but it's gotten a lot better. So it kind of takes care of the problems for me. But like anytime I run a model where I'm like, I'll just throw all the data I have on this, then I always get a thing where it's like, I'm sorry, I can't find a gradient, I'll throw it away. And that's almost all my fault because I didn't think at all before I like threw the data at the model. But typically that's my problem. I've just run something that I didn't think about or the model is not written right. It's just not reasonable. So typically when I get those, I'll sit down and I'll be like, oh, okay. I'll just like print out all of the variables I see and I'll just do like debug from there, which is a pretty good standby to use. And you can do that in, in Turing. The nice thing is you just write normal Julia mm-hmm. code and it, it just works. Mm-hmm. We impose kind of probabilistic framework on your function. So you can write whatever code you want, but that's print line or writing it to file mm-hmm. if you really want to. Yeah, that's probably it. Can't find a gradient, because I'm bad at modeling. (laughs) I think
0: it's a pretty common error. I see that also a lot on PyMC3. At the beginning, I did that a lot. You don't scale your data. And actually, I was really amazed when I discovered that you just had to standardize your data, and then the sampler was able to run. I was like, man, that's magic. It's awesome. Uh
1: (laughs) I was totally blown away. I went on the Slack channel for all the Turing people, and I was like, what's wrong with my model? It's not finding a gradient. And somebody was just like, just standardize it. And I standardized it. And the sampler ran like five times faster. (laughs) There was no gradient problems. It was awesome.
0: It's super weird. At the beginning, you were like, why would standardized data help the sampler? Then you understand. Yeah. But yeah, it's really at the beginning you do that. It's also coupled to choice of priors. Often if you take two wide priors, plus you don't standardize the data, then boom. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, when I started this, I was doing like all uniform priors everywhere. I was like, okay, I just know this variable is going to be positive. Yeah. That's a super dumb yeah, prior. Yeah. It's impossible to find a gradient on that. Yeah. And so that posterior space is really yeah. ugly and it gives you some bad conclusions. So definitely use some kind of strongly informative or weakly informative prior. Super important. Yeah. I have learned. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's perfect. Very practical advice. Listeners love that, usually. So thanks. And yeah, the other question I wanted to ask you before going on to the traditional last two questions is what does the future of PPLs of probabilistic programming languages look like to you? You know, which advances are particularly exciting to you? Because I know you're passionate about that topic.
1: I just like to see them used more. Like back to my field in economics, a lot of the problem with why Bayesian methods aren't used in economics is because like everyone learns Bayesian methods in a super weird way. Mm. They're like okay, I have all these priors, and I'm going to derive explicit Gibbs conditionals, which is kind of hard, and it's really tiring. Like, I don't want to derive Gibbs conditionals unless the model is super easy. It's really hard to do that. Like, I just want to, like, grab people and say, like, you don't have to do that. You can just, go find any probabilistic programming language, and it will solve the problem for you. You can just write it out, like your model, and it's done. No Gibbs conditionals, and it's still pretty damn fast. I just wish more people would use them, and I'm hoping that if we scream loud enough, more people will start using probabilistic programming, and I would love to see more just use from domain specialists. And even you can use probabilistic programming just if you want like a maximum likelihood estimate. If you just want to specify your model and you just want a maximum likelihood estimate, a lot of software will do that for you. You don't have to write out an explicit comment filter. You don't have to do all this hard stuff that people have been doing. Like there's a cheat. You can cheat and you can use probabilistic programming. And I wish everyone knew that. And I want to see more of that. That's my goal is I hope that it works out and more people use it.
0: Yeah, I love it. I love it. It reminds me of the meme with Batman slapping someone, you know, we should do a sticker (laughs) like that, you know, with Batman saying, use HMC, you know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, I seriously, I explained this to one of my professors. I was like, you don't have to do gifts conditionals anymore. You can just use HMC and everything's super fast. HMC is magic. And you should know that. I wish we taught it, but we don't.
0: Yeah, that's true. Okay, now I really have to let you go because you've been very generous with your time. But before that, I have to ask you the last two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. So the first one is, if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? And it's a good question for you because it makes you renege on the scarcity assumption in economics, you know, so it's good. If there is no scarcity, what do you do, Cameron?
1: (laughs) Honestly, I was thinking about this, and all the problems I have, everybody has this huge problem now where, like, we're all at home. A lot of that is like a function of scarcity, right? There's a finite number of people on the Earth right now. There is more or less finite resources. Eventually, it'll kind of tap out. There's really not a good solution. Like, I can't say we should have less people, because that's not a good thing to say. But we also need to be more wary of how our presence interacts with the world around us, and how our choices affect global welfare. I guess that's kind of the problem I would solve, but it's like kind of a hokey answer. Like saying, I want to solve world hunger, you know? (laughs) It's tricky to answer because, I don't know, that's a hard question.
0: Yeah, that's the goal. I have to confess. (laughs) And the second question is not easier. It's if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive, or fictional, who would it be?
1: A week or two ago, I was listening to Thomas Wiki, Mm. his episode. He stole my answer, which was Richard (laughs) Feynman. I was very angry because Richard Feynman, he's like my rock star guy.
0: You can also say Richard Feynman because the goal of these questions is not really any particular answer. It's about the distribution of the answers, you know, because it's a Bayesian show. So you can answer Richard Feynman. Oh, (laughs) fair.
1: Okay, I'll say Richard Feynman, but I'll also say, um, no, I'll stick with Richard Feynman because that guy was totally rad. Yeah. He was super awesome. Yeah. So I'm going to stick with that. Thomas had it right. That's true. Richard Feynman.
0: Perfect. You and Thomas can go have dinner with Richard Feynman one day. (laughs) Cool. I'm into it. But (laughs) I I, I have to confess, uh, you know, I had a prior for you on this question and I thought you were going to answer Alan Turing.
1: Oh, Alan Turing. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I feel like Alan Turing wouldn't be fun to talk to. Alan Turing, I feel, would be way too smart. And I'd be sitting there and I'd be like, oh, man, I'm tired here. The great thing about Richard Feynman was like, he was smart, but he's also folksy. Mm. He was somebody who was charming. Like Alan Turing is like super smart, but I would also just feel dumber than I normally do in the room yeah yeah but
0: i was gonna say it would perfectly optimize your utility function which is the dumbest person in the room you know so
1: <laughs> that's true yeah. you're speaking like a true economist you really <laughs> nailed the language
0: yeah i have to confess my fiance is doing a phd in economics so that's... oh i am so sorry <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I won't answer that.
1: Yes, very wise. But I will say there is a reason that economics is called the dismal science. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Because
1: we're not fun.
0: I don't know what you're talking about, Cameron. Right. I think it's time to end the show. (laughs)
1: Okay. That's fair. I don't want to get you in
0: trouble. Okay. Well, Cameron, thank you. It was uh, really, really fun talking with you and learning about Turing, probabilistic programming in Julia, and the state of Bayesian methods in economics. I hope listeners learned as much as me. I'm sure a lot of them are going to try out Turing now. I know it's definitely on my to-do list. And congrats to you and to the other car devs for this amazing project. As usual, I put resources and a link to your website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. So thank you again, Cameron, for taking the time and being on this show.
1: Thank you very much for having me on. It was a lot of fun.
0: This has been another episode of Learning Bayesian Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher and visit learnbayesstats.anvil.app for more resources based on today's topics as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true Bayesian state of mind. That's app. Our theme music is Good Bayesian by Baba Brinkman fit NC Lars and Mega Ram. Check out his awesome work at BabaBrinkman.com. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting Patreon.com slash Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You are truly a good baby. Change your predictions after taking information. In. And if you're thinking I'll be less than
1: amazing,
0: let's adjust those expectations.